This is the East Traumacast. With your moderators, Veron Smatback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi everyone, it's Dave Morris. This episode of the TraumaCast is actually a very special edition. We are introducing a new podcast from East called the East StoryCast. This is a project spearheaded by Dr. Andrew Bernard, where he and the members of his task force have interviewed many of the giants in the field of trauma, particularly those who have been influential in the founding and creation in early years of East. In this episode today, we hear from Dr. Kimball Mall, who was one of the founding members of East and was the first East president. Uh, this is a great interview from Dr. Mall. He talks a lot about the early days of trauma care and uh, what life was like for him in those early days. I encourage you to check it out. I also encourage you to subscribe to the East Storycast. You can get this through iTunes or Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. Anyway, check it out. Without further ado, the East Storycast. Enjoy. I'm Andrew Bernard, and you're listening to East Storycast, histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who were there. Dr. Kimball Mall is a founding member of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma and East's first president. He was born in New Jersey, but has lived most of his life in the South. After completing his surgical training at Kentucky, he was recruited to MCV, where he helped develop the Virginia EMS system. He was chairman of surgery at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He succeeded Dr. Cowley as trauma director at the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. He went on to Loyola, where he helped attain Illinois' first ACS Level 1 trauma verification. He has also established trauma programs at Caraway in Birmingham and in Doha, Qatar. He's been visiting professor in Launchstool. He is an internationally renowned clinician, educator, and leader who is an expert in program development, and he's one of our founders. Dr. Maul, thank you for coming to Lexington, and thank you for joining us on East Storycast. Already been fun being here. Uh, after going to the basketball game last night, and as I've become accustomed to, as as you have, a Kentucky victory it was uh, always a good thing. Well, I was born in, and raised in New Jersey. Um, since I've been in the South, most of my professional career, I don't usually discuss that very much. Uh, but uh, I finished uh, public high school in a little, little place called Union Township, New Jersey, and then attended the University of Virginia. I uh, got my degree in three years from UVA and then went to medical school at Cornell in New York City. When I was at Cornell, I had uh, an interesting experience in, uh, in getting in, 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 in my own health uh, episode of having 
discovered protein in my urine. And long story short, I got interested in urology and and I was not ill, uh, but I was able to uh, get in close with the uh, urology uh, division, did some research with them, I actually presented a, my first paper at the New York Urologic uh, Association as a medical student. And then I went to Duke for internship and one year of residency with the idea of going into urology. My training was interrupted by the two years in the U.S. Army. And then I, I felt like I really didn't have adequate surgical background to go on in urology, and I wanted to do some more general surgery. And Dr. James Glenn, who was the chief of urology at Duke at the time and a native of Lexington, um, he was able, through his contacts with the university here, get me in the program here as a PG-3 resident. I then finished the program here in 1974. Uh, Dr. Griffin asked me to stay on the faculty, which I did, and I was on the faculty for two and a half years, working as a junior partner to Dr. Charles Sacitello, who uh, more than anyone in my uh, professional career, I learned more from him uh, from any, from anyone else. He was an excellent teacher and very knowledgeable and an excellent surgeon and he had a wonderful way with patients. And He and I are still in contact even though he's well into his 80s and, uh, and in marginal health. Uh, then I uh, got recruited uh, by Laser Greenfield and I went to the Medical College of Virginia. So uh, two and a half years out of my uh, residency, I was all of a sudden associate professor of surgery at the medical college and was at MCV for seven years. Two and a half years into your time as a faculty member, you were recruited as associate. Right. Okay, we well, set a high bar for the rest of us there. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, I had a great experience at uh, when I was at the medical college. At that time, I was also chairman of the Committee on Trauma for the state of Virginia and very involved in their getting uh, a trauma system established in Virginia. And uh, I also uh, recognized that the city of Richmond was poorly served by their pre-hospital capabilities and felt that we there was really a great need for paramedic education <clears throat> in, this, in the central Virginia region. So, uh, you know, not being a timid person, I walked over to Senator Willie's office at the legislature. Senator Willie was one of the old Virginia gentlemen who was chairman of the Appropriations Committee and a senior senator. And I went to his office and I spoke to his secretary and uh, uh, told her what I wanted. And I told her that if Senator, if the senator collapsed on the floor of the Senate, there would be no one to take care of him, rescue him, no paramedic available. And she was appalled. And I said, well, that's a fact. She said, well, uh, if you want to pack yourself a ham sandwich and come back tomorrow at noon, Senator Willie eats lunch at his desk every, every day and I'll get you in to talk to him. So sure enough, I came back the next day with a brown bag and a <clears throat> sandwich, sat down across from Senator Willie and told him what I, I wanted to do. I wanted to 
start a paramedic program at the Medical College of Virginia. And he said, well, how much is it going to cost? I said, $100,000. He looks at me and said, well, Dr. Maul, he said, do you suppose you could get by with 99000 And I looked at him. I said, well, we, I think we could probably squeeze by with ninety nine. He said, well, because with ninety nine, I can get you the money. He said, for 100000 I, I got to go to the floor of the Senate. So sure enough, $99,000 rolled into the uh, Medical College of Virginia. And the reason I'm telling you this story is this is a lesson in that no good deed goes unpunished. About maybe <clears throat> four to six weeks later, I get a call from the dean's office. The dean at the Medical College of Virginia at the time was uh, Jesse Steinfeld. And they may not mean anything to you young folks, but Jesse Steinfeld was an immediate, immediate past Surgeon General of the United States. And he is the one that probably more than anyone else um, caused the warning to be printed on the cigarette packs. He was quite a, uh, a, a dynamic guy and a very, very, you know, approachable and easygoing and this kind of thing. So he calls me to his office, which of course is never a good thing. And he said, Kim, he said... It wasn't to congratulate you. No, 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 as, I'll, as you will hear. <laughs> He said, Kim, I understand you had an occasion to, uh, to speak with Senator Willie recently. I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, what was the nature of your, your, your getting with the senator? I said, well, I wanted to get a paramedic program started in the Department of Surgery. And he looked at me and he said, he said well, I'm sure that you considered that to be a laudable idea. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, President Ackle is not happy with you. I said, really? He said, yes. President Ackle has been trying to get in to see Senator Willie for eight months, and he will not see him. And he feels that you have squandered an opportunity, and he is not happy with you. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, the rest is history. The paramedic program thrived, and now uh, is, uh, has feeder programs throughout the state of Virginia, and is uh, internationally known. Uh, They've been invited, the representatives of the program have invited to, to Australia to, to uh, uh, teach uh, in, in Australia. And it's just been, you know, it's gone bonkers. So, I've been to the Hill a few times for advocacy days. It, it's never unfolded for me quite like that. Yeah. There was never an offer at the time. There was always a we'll get back to you sort yeah, of well, closure to yeah. the discussion. I guess when I told Senator Willie that, you know, there was no one there to rescue him if he collapsed, maybe maybe it had a little more personal maybe effect. Said, maybe I just need to message yeah, it differently. Anyway, from uh, from from Richmond, which I, I rose uh, to the rank of professor, I then uh, was recruited to Knoxville as chairman. And I went there in 19... 83, and stayed until 1992. So I was there nine years, during which time, uh, when I got there, the program had been uh, disaccredited, the surgery program had been disaccredited, and was provisionally reaccredited to finish one chief resident, uh, based on some excellent work done by one of the surgeons who was there, but there were only five full-time surgeons in the, at the hospital. Uh, there was one urologist and three general surgeons and myself. And uh, we had a program that was slotted for eight residents. So 
uh, you know, we uh, we worked and tried to start building a program. Fortunately, we had a very visionary guy sitting over in the vice chancellor's office, and when I went to him with ideas, he was pretty supportive, and we were slowly able to enlarge the residency program and enlarge the faculty. And when I left, we were approved to finish three chief residents and slotted for 18 residents. And we had a faculty of 18 full-time people, and uh, including programs in all, virtually all of the surgical specialties, but including a very successful transplant program, vascular service, trauma program. Um, and, and while I was there, there was a tremendous struggle to develop a trauma system in Tennessee, and the university hospital was ultimately verified by the college as the first adult and pediatric trauma center in the United States, and that was back in, gosh, it must have been uh, late, late, maybe late eight, 1980s or something. I can't, I don't remember exactly when it happened. Maybe it might have been 1990, but it was, uh, it was a struggle. <clears throat> the, uh, I can tell you fascinating stories about trying to get a helicopter service established at the, at the, at the university. It was opposed by all the other hospitals in town. Some amuse, amusing experiences I had in, in getting that, getting that uh, started. And uh, ultimately, it was it, it was a very successful nine years, and it was, uh, in terms of my own professional growth, uh, the most fulfilling and productive period of my uh, career. And then I made a fateful decision uh, to accept uh, the directorship at the Shock Trauma Center after Dr. K Dr. Cowley died, and I uh, I was there about a year and a half and got chewed up in the political mill, and then. Um, was forced out, took a year off, and then went to Loyola University Chicago as vice chairman under Bob Freark and head of the Division of Trauma and EMS. And I was there for five years. And uh, those were also very good years. Uh, when I went to uh, Loyola, uh, the, the name David Boyd may not mean much to, but David Boyd was the director of the federal program on the development of EMS systems in the United States back in the 70s. And David Boyd was from Illinois, and he, uh, using his influence, he got every hospital in the state of Illinois to be designated as a trauma center. All they had to do was fill out an application. So the designation of being a trauma center, whatever level in, in the state of Illinois, was relatively meaningless. So I convinced Dr. Freark that we should pursue tra um, ACS verification. And so Loyola was then, then became the first ACS verified level one trauma center in the state of Illinois. And from there, I got a call from um, my friend Bob Carraway down in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, the Caraway Medical Center was as it was a non-university academic medical center, and it was uh, unique in many ways. It had the oldest surgical residency program in the state of Alabama. Big trauma center had owned and operated three helicopters. Busy trauma service um, had the largest largest multi-place 
um, uh, a hyperbaric unit in the southeast uh, United States. Uh, Dr. Caro is big in wound healing and things like that, a surgeon. And his grandfather started the hospital, and then his father was the CEO, and his father died, and then Bob became the new CEO, and he needed someone to lead the trauma program down there. So he brought me down under the guise of being a consultant to tell him what he needed to do, and then he made me an offer that sounded pretty good. And so I left Loyola and, and went to Caraway. And what I didn't know at the time is that Caraway was financially very, very stressed. And uh, But as soon as I got there, I figured, well, we're going to get this hospital verified. There's a level one trauma center. And we worked, and six months later, the college came through, and we had a very successful visit. And Caraway was the first ACS verified level one trauma center in the state of Alabama. Now, you may see a theme here, and the theme is is that what I have done every place I've been, except at shock trauma, was to, to develop the program to a level high enough to be accredited by or verified by the American College of Surgeons as a level one trauma center. So uh, it was really funny because uh, the University of Alabama Medical Center is just, you know, right across the way, uh, just a, maybe a mile or so from Caraway. And um, we scooped them by a year. It took them a year to, to get verified by the college. But when, when Caraway was verified, uh, it, there was a little small column in the second part of the newspaper acknowledging that Caraway had been verified by the college. And I went to Bob Caraway's office. I was very angry. And I said, well, what kind of public relations outfit do we have at the hospital that would would not, you know, get this recognized for what it really means for the community. Well, next thing that happened, they took a, a photo of me in full surgical garb, thankfully, cap, mask, gown, and they bought a full page in the Birmingham News, <laughs> and it said, big headline said, first again, okay? And then it talked about the trauma center, and, and all the other th first things that Caraway had done. And it was really a good piece of public relations, but it, apparently it really angered the folks across the way at the university. I heard rumors, I never, I never confirmed it, but that, that picture, that, that page of the paper was up on some bulletin board over there in the men's locker room and they were throwing darts at it. But I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's, that's actually true. So uh, Caraway then fell on hard times. The, the uh, I went there in 98, uh, by 2001, it was apparent that the hospital was having difficulties. They ultimately sold the helicopter program, closed the trauma center, and I would, by that time I was uh, chairman of the Department of Surgical Education and running the residency program. And the handwriting was on the wall that uh, Caraway was going to go under. And it did go under in 2008. They just closed the doors, and and that was really a very, very sad thing for the community because it was a really good hospital, and they had very good people there, and uh, it was just one of those bad things. But in 2007, I accepted the position as professor of surgery and head of the uh, trauma service at Hamad General Hospital in Doha, 
cutter in the Middle East. And now to kind of get, get around to how that happened, back in the early 90s, I was co-chairman of the National EMT uh, Basic Curriculum Project for the government. And the guy who was the administrator of that program was a fellow by the name of Walt Stoy. Walt uh, was at the University of Pittsburgh. And when Pittsburgh, uh, they bid and succeeded in getting the contract with the Qatar government to develop an EMS system for the country, one of the pieces of that project was the, the trauma piece to develop the trauma system and, uh, and the hospital, Hammett General, as a, as a trauma center. Walt called me on the phone and said, listen, um, I, I want to know if I can interest you in going over to the Middle East and working on a project for us. Well, obviously I did go, but it, it, was, it, was in the, it was in the fall of 2006 that he called me and already in December and January, I was going over to Launchstool as a visiting professor with the college and the AASD program. <clears throat> and I couldn't, I could not, you know, get, get, you know, tell him yes or no until after I got back from that. Anyway, uh, I did go over uh, as a on a consulting visit just to see the lay of the land, and I accepted the position. And I was there for three years. It was. Um, uh, an extraordinary experience. Um, it, as I've already mentioned, with my efforts in developing hospitals as level one trauma centers, that was clearly what needed to be done at that hospital. But to do it in a situation where the, there, there was absolutely not, I mean, there was no way of communicating from the field to the hospital. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the culture was very, very different. The, you know, the emergency department, now, this is whoever is listening to this. This is not a misstatement. The emergency department sees four hundred and fifty thousand visits a year. Okay, four hundred and fifty thousand visits a year. That's eleven or twelve hundred patients a day in the emergency department, and they have to be separated into men and women, except in the trauma resuscitation room. So it's a sprawling emergency complex, and. Uh, it uh, about to sort of <laughs> it's a sprawling emergency complex, and it's a uh, trauma resuscitation unit that has eight beds. Okay, and they're not modern beds. Okay, they're stretchers and this kind of thing. Anyway, so we. Uh, I, I, had, I had with me a trauma uh, nurse manager, Bruce Shear from uh, Columbus, Ohio, who was great. And he and I just got along fabulously, and we just set about developing this trauma program. And it took us six months before we were operational. We recruited surgeons. They had, they had a lot of surgeons here, and we uh, put out the word that we were going to develop a trauma service, and there was a overwhelming level of interest in this, especially to work with an American, okay, because of working with an American surgeon was, you know, these guys thought that was really kind of neat. And so w what happened was we had four trauma service, four services 
of five uh, uh, surgeons with a team leader and four other surgeons to staff the inpatient service and the resuscitation unit. And uh, one service would be totally off on any given day. One service would be backup and the other service would be in the hospital, but not uh, uh, to come in and make rounds and this kind of thing. So you're on, you're on in the hospital 24 hours every fourth day with the other sur- second service backing you up, going to clinic and this kind of thing. So it wasn't over totally overburdening, but it was a lot busier than what the surgeons there were, were already doing. So I felt that we needed a differential payment scale for the trauma service. And that was, a, that was a hard negotiation to, uh, to get through, but ultimately we were successful and the guys, because they were working harder, they got, a, they got more money. And that was, so, that was always a good thing and they, they were grateful to me for that and for other things that happened. So uh, one, of the, one of the impediments to progress was that the, they had two surgical ICUs, one a general surgery ICU and one called a trauma ICU. And they're both run by an anesthesiologist, a female gal from uh, uh, Germany. Uh, and, you know, in all of every place I've worked up to this time, there is never anybody I couldn't get along with. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to really compromise more than you wanted, but there was never anyone who I could not get along with or cajole into supporting what I wanted to do. This gal was just, there was no dealing with her. I mean, it really wasn't. So, um, what I decided to do is uh, I went to the head of the hospital and I said, uh, in order for us to be successful, we need to develop the hospital according to criteria of the American College of Surgeons. So, I I would like you to to, uh, support that and have the board of trustees of the hospital issue a uh, endorsement of uh, efforts to achieve this this uh, verification, which I wrote myself and gave to her, and it was passed by the board. And <clears throat> between the lines of that is the directorship of the trauma ICU has to be a surgeon. So the head of anesthesia. <clears throat> who was a guy from Belgium and you know, a smart guy and a nice guy. He, uh, he looked at me and he said, you are, you are really, really sneaky. He said to me, he said, and then uh, the gal, uh, she left. All right. So that's in the optimal resources manual. Yeah. Is it the, yeah. It has to be a surgeon. And so we recruited Mark Sebastian from Duke to come over and run the critical care program and direct the ICU. So uh, that, and, and he, de- he developed a fellowship program, you know, just like after a standard U.S. fellowship and this kind of thing. So this was all going on through 2007, 2008, 2009. Meanwhile, uh, we're, we're very busy clinically. The first year there, I was there when we started the trauma program, Part of, their, of the, the regulations of the trauma service is that no patient could go, could go to the operating room without the, uh, uh, the consultant or the attending. 
unfortunately, I was the only consultant there for the first year. So I was, uh, I was rather busy. Uh, and of course, the, sur the guys loved, the, all, all the surgeons that were staffing us were fully trained surgeons. They're, they had all completed their surgical training. Most had taken the, the quote, Arab boards, which is, uh, is not equivalent to the American Board of Surgery exam by any means, but is, it is their form of certification. So they were all experienced surgeons, more or less. Some were a lot better than others. Uh, but uh, after uh, the first year, then, uh, then Dr. Sebastian came and there were two of us, and we sent uh, one of our guys to Shakrama to do a fellowship. And when he came back, he was the third guy. So by, by the, the end of the second year, we had a little depth in terms of the faculty, and we could... Uh, we could do uh, do some other things, but it was a uh, it was a very very exciting time. We uh, they developed a, we got a helicopter. Uh, we got some really good Australian paramedics in. Uh, they they were involved with the helicopter service, but they were also running with the ambulances. The uh, the pre hospital providers were a bunch of Tunisian anesthesia. Um, uh, technicians. That's what they had. They brought them in because they had the the um, soccer tournament there in December of 2006, and they had to increase the capability of the of the field. So they brought a bunch of Tunisians in, and they stayed. And they were they were running with uh, they were like your basic ambulance uh, support. Never never quite. Met the met the criteria to be to be where you wanted them to be, but uh, the the f field program improved uh, because we we inserted a lot of quality control measures in the field, and and that 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 did a lot to to uh, improve things in the field. As far as the hospital went, the hospital is a six hundred and twenty five bed hospital with eight operating rooms. That's and and it and so to get a trauma patient in uh, was sometimes a, a struggle because the reality of the situation was they didn't have any there were no rooms open so um, not much we could we could do about that piece but uh, we when we, we set out when we started the program the first thing we did was develop a performance improvement program. And we did, it's just a kind of a standard thing. We had the peer review committee, and then we had the system committee. And I invited a representative from every conceivable service in the hospital that had any bearing on trauma to join this committee. And of course, there was, you would not have believed the enthusiasm of these people for, for being appointed and sitting on these committees. And so the, the monthly meetings were just, uh, I mean, they're just a lot of fun for me to see how things really worked out. Because one, for one thing, I wouldn't let anybody be, be still around the table. We would have an agenda, and the, the the people sitting around the table, if they didn't say anything, then I would go around the table. I said, "Well, how are things with uh, how are things in the blood bank? Have you had any problems with the trauma service?" And blood bank was a real big problem for us, actually. But we 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 figured that one out, and you know any any sort of you know the 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 only service they didn't have was the chaplain service. Okay, <laughs> since you're dealing with a Muslim in a Muslim country, 
but every everybody that social services and nursing and, and uh, physical therapy all the all the all the 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 peripheral services to the trauma patient they were all represented and they're all always had an opportunity to speak up and and this kind of you know it got to be a lot and of course the surgeons all attended and it was a, it was a big thing not like some programs in the United States where you know you 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 don't you don't feel like going to the meetings or you have, you have trouble getting your surgeons there. This, there was enthusiasm for the for the attendance at these meetings, which was really kind of fun. So that that started and we got that working really really well. Then the research piece, of which there was none, and I'll tell you this story. This is a, a interesting, great great story. I'll, I'll let you decide whether it's interesting or not. There was a surgeon who was working primarily in the uh, resuscitation unit when I got there. Uh, his name was Yasser. Yasser was from Iraq. By the way, all the surgeons were from from that area of the world. We had surgeons from Pakistan, India, uh, Iraq, Jordan, Libya, Sudan. Uh, none from Qatar. Okay, there were no surgeons on the trauma service from Qatar because the Qataris are very privileged people. We can get back and talk about Qatar as a country in a little bit. <clears throat> But anyway, the the uh, uh, Yasser. Uh, well, let me put it this way: When you have emergency department that has four hundred and fifty thousand visits a year, and you've got two CT scanners, okay, uh, and an, as a trauma program, you now have priority on the CT scan. Um, you uh, you don't want to abuse that privilege. So Yasser decides to de try to figure out which patients with head injury really are likely to have some kind of finding on the head CT. So he, does, he starts his prospective study on mild head injury, okay, GCS 14, 15. Uh, and he amasses his data, and he's looking at the, the kind of symptoms that, that uh, might be loss of consciousness or in the field or um, headache, vomiting, and he detects statistically significant difference for only one, one issue, and that was seizures. So if someone had a seizure associated with their head injury, head trauma, they were more than likely to have something on their head CT. So he, had this, he started the study before he even got there. And so he came with it, to me with it, and I kind of massaged it a little bit. Anyway, long story short, we put it in, we submitted as a as an abstract to the uh, European Society of Trauma Surgery and Emergency Surgery. Yes, this it gets accepted, and there are two hundred and twelve posters at this meeting, and Yasser's poster wins the first prize. Okay, and I have a photo of him getting uh, getting the uh, the award from the chairman of the meeting. And when we, he came back, when we came back, the meeting was in Budapest. When we came back and made rounds the next morning, and everybody learned that he had won, all of a sudden it was like a service epiphany. Everybody wanted to do research. And what happened from that was everybody got involved with some kind of project. And you can imagine as a, with a busy program from which no one had done ever done anything, it was, a, it was fertile ground to do research. So uh, that, that was another thing that we got started and, and really, really, really took off. Dr. Mall, thank you for being with us.
and thank you for your creativity and your vision and tenacity that led to the formation of East. You're the reason we're here. This concludes another episode of East Storycast, histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who were there. Until next time, let's keep the conversation going.